And so this is ultimately a battle over what makes us human. And, you know, it really is a, a, a battle for the fate of the species. Welcome to the show that the fact checkers warned you about. The one that debunks the mainstream narrative and gives you high signal, actionable content that helps you navigate the cloud world. It's Bomb Thrower TV with your host, Mark Jeffrey. Hi, everyone. Bomb Thrower TV. I am Mark Jeftovic. And uh, with me today is uh, the one, the only Whitney Webb. It's been a long time coming. So um, I'm really glad to have you on today. And we're here on Bomb Thrower TV. Just a quick bit of background. Um, my audiobook business is doing your audiobook, One Nation Under Blackmail. Mm -hmm. I typically like to do an interview with the author of each book we do. Um, but I've kind of started my own, my other podcast, Bomb Thrower TV is just sort of, I'm just consolidating everything there. So everything happens under Bomb Thrower TV. And, uh, and then there's a few other channels, but here you are. And, uh, you know, I started coming across your work many years ago. I think I first heard you on uh, probably uh, Quat the Raven uh chris irons oh right mm -hmm. yeah and then um over and then lately i mean people that i know from within the bitcoin circles because i'm like a you know a bitcoin maxi so you were on marty bent's show uh and then yeah. mm -hmm. just recently on robert breedlove's show you've been on both yeah. those shows multiple times and I, and you know i know you talk about bitcoin sometimes in terms of like gaining um resiliency and independence but you're not really a bit you don't have like orange laser eyes in your twitter no in your twitter well bio. like yeah so <laughs> i don't i'm not interested in telling people where and or how to spend their money i feel mm -hmm. like you know uh my job and what i do is about giving people information and letting them make their own decisions based off of that their own analysis of that information um you know and that's why i encourage people people to engage with source links in my work and things like that so you know i'm not really in the business of t telling people what to think you know with articles i write even so why would i tell people where to spend their money i mean ultimately when people ask me about like what they should do you know i say um ultimately what people need to do to avoid being sort of sucked into this technocratic system of extreme dystopia being set up is that you have to sort of invest in whatever a parallel system to that looks like for you and if bitcoin is part of your path to that goal then cool and if it's not also cool you know what right. ultimately matters is um you know, that you're spending your money on things that are going to keep you and your family, um, you know, fed and sheltered and relative, you know, as safe as you can be um, in this period of really unprecedented stability that the world is entering into. And for some people, um, Bitcoin's part of that. And for some people, it's not. And, you know, it's not my place to tell people what should be their journey to that endpoint? I just think that's you know the best endpoint that most people um, that want to not be a part of the system they're building uh, should be moving toward. So, um, but that being said, I think there is a lot of uh, Bitcoin. Obviously, has some sort of promise in the sense that it's very obvious from the powers that be that they have a vested interest in destroying Bitcoin in particular um, in a way that is um, 
it's it's not the same for other cryptocurrencies, right? Bitcoin is uh, uniquely targeted by the powers that be. And I think that's going to escalate in the short term. Um, and a lot of it's, uh, I'm actually going to be doing a video on this hopefully next week, but um, for the last American Vagabond where I, I contribute sometimes, mm-hmm. um, I did a two-part series, I think back in 2021. And this was about... Um, a couple different things, uh, but mainly about the World Economic Forum's partnership against cybercrime mm-hmm. and how essentially um, the policy decisions that are being made, and now they're being echoed by top people in the Biden administration, is the idea of eliminating anonymity in the digital realm completely. So this you know, is part part of it is ending financial anonymity. And that's the part where they want to try and bring Bitcoin to heal. And but the other part of it is eliminating online anonymity in its entirety, meaning that your internet access is linked to a government issued ID. And obviously, this is meant to be tied into the digital ID infrastructure that we see being built. Um, you know, with increasing speed uh, these days. But if you look at groups like the WEF Partnership Against Cybercrime, uh, they're arguing uh, for uh, that policy. So I would say that, um, you know, the the battle against Bitcoin is also, um, you know, sort of a battle against uh, privacy in general online. It's and obviously financial privacy is a major threat to them because they um, they want to know what everyone's doing. They don't want people to be, quote unquote, unbanked. Right. Um, Or they require that people continue to use central banks and commercial banks, despite the obvious corruption of of both of those entities. And it's no surprise that the WEF and uh, their affiliates at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and their cyber policy stuff um, work very closely with central banks and work very closely with Wall Street. And also national security agencies, and they're essentially looking to merge all of those entities into one. And obviously something like uh, Bitcoin or a truly decentralized uh, cryptocurrency framework uh, that allows for, you know, robust anonymity uh, and and things of that nature and and true decentralization is not going to... um, uh, is, is going to challenge a system like that. You know, if they're trying to centralize power in the financial realm to the extent that they're merging national security agencies with Wall Street and central banks, um, that's just uh, total insanity, right? But it's an obvious, you know, extreme push towards centralization of power, I guess you could say financial power and, you know, the type of power the national security state wields. So there's this effort to centralize that in an unprecedented way. So anything that challenges that to a significant extent, they're going to try and, and destroy. So I, I I would encourage people that are, um, you know, invested in Bitcoin or see uh, Bitcoin as uh, promising to also be realistic of, of the uphill battle um, it faces and what potentially may be thrown at it down the line by uh, people who are, you know, obviously threatened by by what it offers. Well, we, we can touch <laughs> back on that because I have some thoughts around that. But um, sure. one of the things you mentioned, and and I think the phrase that I really picked up on in your last uh, talk with on Robert Breedlove's uh, What is Money show is the colonization of the mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what that's what this whole merger of this super centralized state is all about and and the WEF and um, we can get to that. Um, but I think let's let's just do a little bit of a base work. Like I know people who are following your work are well familiar with with what it's about and what you've been covering. Uh, there's so much of it. No one's ever going to be able to get their arms around the whole thing. I don't know how you do it. I mean, the book 
the book was when I originally met uh, or started talking to Chris at your publisher about what it was. It was like an Epstein biography, and then it became two two volumes, and now it's it's much beyond that, right? <laughs> so, how yeah. about, I'd say the TLDR would be: it's one nation under blackmail is is not about Epstein per se. You mentioned the, the mainstream media that focus is on between 2000 2006, even you know, the obscure, the obfuscation of the client list, it's all what you call a limited hangout, right? It's just, it's come out. And so it's all being a limited hangout. Your book Mm -hmm. is everything else. Uh, It's the merger of the organized crime and the intelligence agencies of the world going back Mm -hmm. to World War Mm -hmm. II or even before. So Mm -hmm. maybe we cover a little bit of that and then sort of go to where we are now with, you know, James Bondian villains like Klaus Schwab and, and people <laughs> like that trying to talk about brain transparency and, and data mining our brain waves. How did we get from there to here? Yeah. Okay. So that's like a huge uh, jump to make. So yeah. um, there's a lot of different ways, I guess, to, to get from point A to point B there. So I guess I'll start off with a pretty brief summary of uh, organized crime and intelligence. So um uh, during World War II, uh, just, uh, it was justified as being out of wartime necessity. Uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence and the precursor to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, uh, made an alliance more or less with organized crime uh, networks, specifically what was known as the National Crime Syndicate, which was a, a somewhat informal alliance between the Jewish mob and the Italian mafia. Because remember back historically, organized crime in the United States uh, has existed sort of like and ethnic silos. Mm-hmm. So you'll have, you know, the Irish or the Italians or uh, the Jews and whatever that are involved, you know, it, it's all by their ethnic group. And so uh, Mayor Lansky of the Jewish mob and uh, Lucky Luciano, Charles Luciano of the Italian mafia were childhood friends and decided that they could be a lot more successful if they um, sort of moved away from that ethnic silo model. And part and so the, uh, one of the things they did, and this was sort of informed by some mentors to um, Mayor Lansky within the Jewish organized crime networks as well, um, was uh, to sort of infiltrate the unions. So this was very successful for them and allowed them to essentially take over the Democratic Party, uh, specifically in New York State, in New York City, the New York State, and then expanding um, uh, from there on out. And that's not to say that this didn't happen in other major uh, urban centers of the U.S. in the same period. I mean, you have the same thing essentially going on with Chicago. And then as a lot of these networks move out west to places like Las Vegas and Los Angeles, you know, it's essentially a lot of the same networks sort of propagating um, this same model. And obviously it comes to involve the Republicans as well, you know, but the the reason they were able to break into the Democrats arguably first uh, was because of their infiltration of unions, which is historically, uh, or at least specifically at this point in time, was a power base for the Democratic Party. And so what uh, this team up between the nascent uh, intelligence uh, apparatus and uh, organized crime uh, was born out of uh, this exact phenomenon. So, um, uh, basically, uh, the National Crime Syndicate had taken over the uh, Dock Workers Union in New York, and the Office of Naval Intelligence was um, attempting to thwart would-be German saboteurs in that particular harbor. So in order to get intelligence, i.e. information from dock workers, they had to go through the union. The union's controlled by the mob. Thus, there has to be a covert alliance with the mob. And this um, event, or uh, you know, alliance, I guess, is uh, remembered today as Operation 
ancient underworld, but the U.S. government denied its existence for about 60, 70 years, something like that. So um, after the war ends, this can, this um, symbiote, it becomes essentially a symbiosis. So instead of just being out of wartime necessity, it's something that is clearly profitable to both sides of this alliance, and it continues and deepens over time. So for people familiar, to not get into too much detail beyond this point, um, you know, people are probably familiar, for example, with organized crime overtones in the JF, uh, John F. Kennedy assassination, mm-hmm. for example, um, which, um, you know, you have uh, Jack Ruby, for example, Jack Rubenstein being sort of part of the, uh, an affiliate of the the Jewish mob down in Texas, um, who comes up in, in my book to an extent. Um, and some, uh, a lot of, you know, uh, wet works or black ops assassination stuff involved a lot of mob figures because remember mayor lansky for example he created murder inc it was called you know essentially mob hitman so you know the cia was drawing some of their assassins from these circles but also a lot of uh it didn't just had to do with that a lot of it was financially based right so you know organized crime had been very successful in sort of dominating offshore finance specifically in the caribbean um and, and significantly so in places like pre-castro cuba uh but you know um the cia and the oss made um significant use of a lot of these same offshore uh, tax havens and financial institutions. So there a lot of this, you know, uh, symbiosis can be seen there as well. So, um, and I guess one thing that would sort of unite these groups is that organized crime, uh, even before the OSS and, and entities like that were even created, was very prolific in the use of blackmail, specifically on politicians. And this is something that, of course, the intelligence services get into as well. And even before, you know, this nascent uh, American intelligence apparatus existed, uh, the British were very involved in this. And of course, if for anyone familiar with uh, the beginnings of American intelligence agencies, Britain's intelligence services played an outside role in influencing uh, the OSS and subsequently the early years of the CIA. Um, of course, uh, corporate America also informing that and a lot of the early um, bigwigs, I guess you could say, at the CIA were intimately linked to Wall Street and the American oligarch clans, which were uh, battling, you know, sort of having factional battles between them over who was going to be on top and whatnot. And so a lot of these families, you know, people probably know the names like the Rockefellers, uh, the Mellons, um, you know, all at the Morgans, like JP Morgan, all sorts of, um, you know, prominent families like this. And they had a lot of, um, you know, spies for hire essentially working for, uh, for them. And this is, these are really the three pillars, organized crime, you know, oligarchs and their, uh, you know, their fixers, I guess. And then the intelligence agencies, you know, this is, uh, what essentially, uh, swirls together and combines to create a lot of what we see today. And blackmail has historically been a major part of that. And so I tried and focused to an extent because of the Epstein angle on sex blackmail, but a very important theme that's been overlooked for some time is that there was also efforts to financially blackmail people, uh, by gaining access to, um, their accounts and their financial activity and surveilling it for that for for those purposes um 
So, for example, uh, you have Armand Hammer from Occidental Petroleum uh, attempting to acquire, um, I think it was called American Bank Shares, which eventually is taken over uh, and used as uh, the vehicle for BCCI's entry into the U.S. financial system. Um, But before then, Armand Hammer wanted to acquire that same bank because congressmen, a lot of congressmen had accounts there, and he explicitly wanted to use that for financial blackmail, you know, leverage. And so, you know, you have the sex angle and you have the financial angle. So even in Epstein's uh, uh, particular case, you have a constant theme of financial crimes as well as sex crimes. And that's really a microcosm of of this broader system, which um, historically has involved both to a significant degree. And you really can't in the Epstein case or even in, in looking at this broader network in which Epstein was enmeshed, you can't really separate the financial crimes from the sex crimes. Um they're both it, it, extremely significant. It almost seems like you can't make it in politics unless you have blackmailable material in your background. Like unless, you know, there's a control file around you, you can't you're not going to go anywhere in politics. Yeah, if you can't like be if they don't exposed. Yeah, if they don't think they control you, they'll force you out. They'll gerrymander your district or they'll destroy you. So one example um, that I sort of touched on in the book involved a congressman uh, that was having a tiff with uh, J. Edgar Hoover um, and had sort of known Roy Cohn, uh, who's uh, Trump's mentor and was very close to Hoover and uh, was Joe McCarthy's general counsel. <clears throat> and uh, Roy Cohn was sort of a go-between between Hoover to this congressman whose name is escaping me for the moment, but he was basically a, a critic of, of surveillance uh, by Hoover and others. And Hoover wanted him to do something, a sort of weaponize um, a Senate hearing against uh, Robert F. Kennedy, a longtime enemy of of Hoover, right? And, um, oh, this is, sorry, the congressman, I believe, is Cornelius uh, Neil Gallagher. Um, and so um, Gallagher didn't play along. And so he was threatened by Hoover and Hoover planted stories with compliant media about him being involved with organized crime, even though Hoover himself had demonstrable uh, organized crime connections and was uh, allegedly blackmailed by organized crime, uh, blackmail being of a sexual nature in that case, because uh, Hoover at this point is well known to have been a closeted homosexual. So um you know, uh, Gallagher was essentially, you know, he stood his ground and didn't, you know, uh, denied the stories and fought back against Hoover, but eventually got uh, got thrown out anyway. And there's a very instructive quote there, um, as told by Gallagher. He's, he uh, was told by Cohn that uh, Hoover said that Gallagher had to go because he he couldn't be trusted to play ball with their side. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but, you know, if, if they don't think that you're... Um, willing to play along and play their games uh, they'll get rid of you and they have a lot of ways to do it i mean you even have people like chuck schumer a few years ago saying things like oh if you screw the intelligence community they have like six ways to sunday to get back at you or something like that right and i think that's quite accurate Mm -hmm. it's it seems the same playbook as uh you know that the economic hitman model except that's oh, sure. foreign mm-hmm. this is done domestically it's all it's all the same playbook really yeah and it's really organized crime if you think about the tactics or you could define it as terrorism perhaps and and you know based on some metrics that it's the use of of fear and a sort of hostage taking threats um to get what you want and and one of the things you've mentioned more than once is is that it's not necessarily ideological. I mean, they may espouse ideological um, yeah touch points, but it's really this is a business, and business is good. 
Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the um, illegal happenings uh, of intelligence agencies, particularly in the 1980s, that were found out, a lot of it was justified because, um, oh, this is the Cold War and we're doing this is all anti-communist activity. And OK, so maybe it's not wasn't, you know, great optics to do those things, but we had to do it to stop communism. Right. And then what I note in the book is that those same people responsible for things like Iran-Contra, for example, uh, roughly a decade later in the Clinton administration are involved in uh, basically selling out U.S. national security by signing off on really insane uh, tech transfers of highly sensitive U.S. military technology to China. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, had to do all of these awful things and, you know, sign off on the disappearing of thousands upon thousands of dissidents in Latin America to stop communism and back all these military dictatorships and cause, you know, back all these death squads in places like Guatemala and El Salvador to stop communism. And then less than a decade later, you're teaming up with um what the ostensibly big communist adversary in the world and you know improving uh their access to military technology which at some point will likely be used against the united states um you know is it really anti-communist ideology that's motivating you absolutely not it's money and power mm -hmm. that's motivating them and i think that's abundantly clear uh over time and you know in the book i try to uh, make a pretty clear case for that. And sometimes it's hard because a lot of this is, um, you know, it's not necessarily easy to see the patterns in it. But uh, if you take the detail oriented approach, which is what I did in the book, um, you see that, you know, over the span of time I cover in the book, you see the same patterns repeating themselves over and over. And it becomes very hard to argue that it's all just a coincidence. Right. Now, what kind of, I'm going to shift topics a little bit because I saw I saw some references once. I can't remember if it was your site, Unlimited Hangout, or American Vagabonds, or even maybe Mint Press that you used to write for. Mm -hmm. But you're coming under some deplatform pressures, right? Like your hosting company canceled you and stuff like that. And this is this is my area of interest. I I'm, I run a domain registrar and a web hosting company. I've been anti anti mm -hmm. cancel culture for twenty years. So. Have you come under the gun at all um, in your your journey here of like trying to stop you or or attenuate you getting your message out? Um, so I was deplatformed by Patreon. Um, in terms of my own stuff, I made a specific effort to avoid any sort of hosting company based in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I had one or initially when I set up Unlimited Hangout. Um, it was all through a company in Iceland that was really uh, yeah dedicated to to privacy and and not deplatforming people and things of that nature however like i mentioned earlier i uh, contribute to the last american vagabond and over yeah. there they had significant very that was significant the one that problems was of, yeah yeah so yeah the hosting company which i think at the time uh it was set up on GoDaddy, which is nice. you know you can't get yeah. more corporate than that um <laughs> yeah uh there was deplatforming going on there there was uh you know and then tlev was deplatformed from uh paypal venmo a series of financial um institutions uh, social media of course youtube which was uh tlev's main platform so, I mean, before I joined, it was pretty much exclusively a video thing. Um, mm. And over time has become more uh, more of a mix between articles and, and, and Ryan Christian's show. 
um, on TLAV. So, um, you know, the, the platforming was really expensive, uh, extensive, but a lot of it was focused on TLAV. And of course that was at a time when Ryan and I collaborated like very regularly, mm-hmm. um, when I had to do the book, uh, and of course I had a, a baby at the same time. Um, you know, I obviously didn't have as much time on my hands, so it, it was a little bit less than, but we're hoping to uh, return to regular collaborations. But anyway, a lot of the deplatforming did occur when we were both, um, both working together quite extensively. So, um, you know, it definitely uh, did affect me, not as much as as, as Ryan probably. Uh, but yeah, it, it, and I don't think we're the only ones that experienced that over the past couple of years. I think it's quite clear that there was um, a certain, you know, segment of people who were uh, extremely censored, uh, some more than others. And a lot of people um, like to say that it's necessarily, you know, it, it has, uh, it's biased against conservatives. And I think that's to an extent, but really I would argue that it's more about people who um, it fo- it, it's, uh, uh, um, it's been harsher for people uh, who don't subscribe necessarily to any political ideology and who are anti-establishment and who tend to be pro-decentralization and pro-freedom. And that's not necessarily exclusive to conservatives, right? There's a lot of conservatives that aren't necessarily um, supportive of some of those policies, right? And at the same time, a lot of the deplatforming was related to uh, COVID-19. So, you know, not everyone in conservative media was questioning the narrative at that time, but TLAV was extensively in a lot of the other websites that were deplatformed aggressively uh, in that same period tended to also have, uh, have been quite skeptical of um, of the official narratives, which of course, three years later, you know, um, a lot of the things that TLAB uh, were censored for and that I had my Patreon shut down for have now essentially been admitted to be true. So um, there, there you have it. <laughs> yeah, that that is really something, especially the latest, you know, declarations about the lab leak or not declarations, but do you know what I mean? Like now, I mean, no one's coming out yeah. to say, OK, it was definitively a lab leak, but everyone it's pretty well like, OK, we we know that this is the most likely scenario and this is now part of the mainstream. Yeah. And, and it's being used, though, I think, for um, political ends. So it's sort of being treated as, oh, this was uh, all the all of the Chinese government's fault. Yeah. Um, And things like that. But and, you know, there's a couple problems with the way the narrative is being driven by these latest admissions. Like you have the FBI director, for example, saying this is the most likely a scenario, for example. But if you look at who was, you know, working and funding this research, there was an, a lot of involvement from both the NIH and the Department of Defense of the U.S. in this particular mm-hmm. facility. Um, and of course, you had uh, weird shutdowns of Fort Detrick in the same time frame um, in Maryland, which is, um, you know, allegedly the source of the anthrax from the 2001 anthrax attacks. Um, and the U.S. has a very extensive biowarfare program that is uh, within the U.S. and really all over the world, including in China, uh, in countries surrounding Russia. Uh, you know, for example, with the Ukraine conflict, a lot of attention was brought to some of these uh, non-Lugar centers. A lot of them were called because of um, the involvement of, of Sam Nunn and uh, Dick Lugar in these um in the creation of these centers, a lot of which were re um, in in the Soviet era were used, you know, to produce uh, bio for bio warfare research, but also to produce pharmaceuticals, and then were sort of repurposed through the non Lugar system to either become part of the DoD bio warfare program or extens- extensions of big pharma, um, and. Uh, you can't really divorce, you know, if you want to say that it came from Wuhan and you're not talking about 
the U.S. government involvement, it, to me, it's definitely a political thing uh, because I think it's pretty clear over the past several years, specifically 2015 to now, uh, there's been an extreme effort, and it should be really obvious to everyone, to get the Democrats to be rabidly anti-Russia and to get conservatives to be ra rabidly anti-China. Um, and ultimately, the two countries that you know, the national security state wants to lead the American people to war with happen to be both of those countries who are allied, right? So who mm -hmm. wins at the end of the day from these narratives? And, uh, you know, what I found in the in, in doing stuff with the book and more recently uh, with a lot of uh, the research I've done on sort of transnational networks and policymaking groups like the World Economic Forum, these guys collaborate extensively, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's not, you know, sort of this na superficial nation, nation state narrative uh, falls apart when you start to really interrogate where power lies. Um, so, for example, uh, a lot has been said, right? since 2016 about the threat of, oh, those awful Russian hackers, they're going to destroy society and they spread disinformation, all of that. So of course, a lot of that has since been debunked, uh, probably most recently, some of it by uh, the release of the, the Twitter files mm -hmm. and, and things of, of that nature. But the World Economic Forum a few years ago teamed up explicitly with the Russian government and a subsidiary, cybersecurity subsidiary of Russia's largest bank, which is uh, tied up extensively with the Russian state uh, for something called Cyber Polygon, where they were doing a bunch of uh, tests on uh, cybersecurity preparedness that involved some of the biggest bank in the world, banks in the world, including American banks, involved the U.S. government. And not a peep from the Biden administration, or uh, I forget who was in office, um, but you know, not a peep from the people complaining about Russian hackers about the WEF teaming up with Mm -hmm. uh, the Russian state for a, ma a massive cybersecurity exercise, for example. Um, and that's because, you know, the, the World Economic Forum is closer to where uh, power ultimately lies than, you know, a U.S. president uh, at this point, at least since 1963. And it's, uh, you know, it's quite clear that, um, you know, the WEF itself is not the top of the pyramid, right? But it's definitely closer to the centers of power than uh, the government's, uh, national government's, national government leadership that we have today, which essentially exist mainly to enforce policy that's written by other people. Uh, with those policies, either coming from the World Economic Forum or the Council on Foreign Relations or Chatham House and a lot of these other organizations. And of course, they have their own people uh, that influence them, which more often than not seem to be a college of uh, corporations and central banks at the end of the day. So this is where we where your work starts to induce a lot of cognitive dissonance in me. <laughs> and so, because when I was on Marty Bent's show and we were talking mainly about like technology censorship and decentralized approaches to being uncancelable. So, we, you know, I went on to talk about the tech stack mainly, but we ended up talking a little bit about, um, you know, I used to say, I don't believe there's this pervasive top-down conspiracy or cabal that controls everything. I just found it a little on the cartoonish side. And it's like, and then I realized that I was actually consciously choosing to believe that because I just don't want to believe that there's some overwhelming centralized force that controls everything. Well, sure. But I think what you're talking about there is that there are people who have grossly simplified the nature of the issue. To True. be sort yeah. of like cartoonish Klaus Schwab Bond villain uh, is going to rule the world. And uh, Schwab is by no means at the top. Right. right. Um, he's just one of these useful faces. Same with people like Bill Gates that are um, publicly 
you know, rolled out in front of us as promoters of these policies. Um, and then they trickle down from these uh, people or, you know, the organizations they run, like the WEF or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, down to governments who then implement those policies. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly don't think that they're the people who are necessarily at the top, right? But do you, and some do people you think treat them. Do you think there mm -hmm. is a top or do you think that there are competing factions competing factions outsized influence? And um, so I always say it's not a conspiracy. It's a dynamic. I mean, there are conspiracies. Yeah, I think that's know that there is fair to say. Yeah. yeah, I think it's competing factions. You have uh, share a lot of the same overarching goals, but they disagree over who gets uh, what who gets part of the, the spoils yeah. and who gets, you know, who gets to control what and exactly how we get from point A to point B. Right. So a lot of them want more control for themselves. Right. So, I mean, if you look at countries around the world, even if they're supposed to be on uh, different sides of this, you know, emerging World War Three divide. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of commonalities, aren't there, in terms yeah. of like the implementation of domestic control systems. All of these countries are interested in domestically controlling their population, and they essentially all agree on uh, the technologies that are needed to do that. Yeah. And uh, essentially agree that restricting freedom domestically is in their interest, right? And so there's a lot of other stuff they agree about as well. So, for example, um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, Russia and China support that wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. So does the US and Europe, right? So, um, you know, you start to sort of interrogate some of, some of this and a lot of the narratives that are um, put out there sort of dissolve to an extent because ultimately power is transnational. It's not in this sort of nation state um, narrative that, you know, we've been uh, told for the past several hundred years, it's a lot more um, nuanced than that, right? Because, you know, um, capital is transnational. A lot of these uh, people with a lot of influence in the U.S. have influence in supposed adversary countries and nothing's done about it. A great example is Stephen Schwartzman uh, from Blackstone Capital, who is, uh, extensively uh, lobbies the Pentagon at very close ties, uh, well, it, it, close ties to both the Biden and Trump administrations, and very cozy, of course, with the ruling elite of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you know, there's no one in Congress, you know, the China hawks or whatever are talking about Stephen Schwartzman and you shouldn't be doing that in this. And, you know, I mean, it's it, th there's people that are sort of seem to be immune to this stuff. Right. And right. the same thing, too, with um, what I mentioned earlier about the 90s and the transfer of sensitive military technology to China. Um, you know, it, th this was uh, investigations into this were shuttered by the Clinton administration, by the George W. Bush administration. It was basically memory hold. Um, after 9-11. And uh, I mean, it was really um, some insane corruption. And some of the people, I mean, nothing was done to a lot of the top business executives of military contractors who pushed a lot of this through. And one of them, Bernard Schwartz, was uh, Biden's top um, donor during the 2020 primary campaign. Right. Um, so there, I mean, there's just like a lot of really insane uh, corruption that can't be explained by the existing nation state narrative. Um, and what's unfortunate, though, is a lot of people, even in independent media, you know, still really subscribe to that and can't really move out of that paradigm or envision a paradigm uh, where that isn't so. And there isn't good guys versus bad guys or this this black and white sort of binary mix up, um, because the more you look for commonalities, um, the more you'll find. And ultimately what it shows to me is that uh, states in general um, are their ruling elite care, regardless of what system mm -hmm. uh, the government is supposedly, you know, uh, 
showing democracy, authoritarian dictator, whatever. I mean, they just care about more money and power for them. So, you know, you might have a larger ruling elite in the U.S., right? than maybe some other countries, but essentially the goal is the same and the public suffers the same, right? And, um, you know, it's it's very silly to assume that some of these people in places like China and Russia will offer a more utopian vision for the world than, you know, the, the masters of the U.S. will, right? So, you know, that's why I ultimately take people back to, you know, this is about getting local and decentralizing and telling these big guys on top to just F off, <laughs> you know? Well we can go there. I was going to ask you, have you ever, I mean, you must've, you sound like you've read Murray Rothbard in your, uh, in your background, like anatomy of the state and, and other, you know, the road or Hayek's road to serfdom. I'm, I mean, this is, this is pretty well all in there or the sovereign individual, which I, I think, you know, is the, the Holy writ of the Bitcoin um, community. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so this whole parallel system, because personally, so everything we've talked about, like how I, you know, try to wrestle with, is it a conspiracy? Is somebody in charge? Whatever. At the end of the day, I look at the economics of the current monetary system and I believe that they're unsustainable and that this is why every country is pushing towards a central bank digital currency. Yeah. CBDCs will have certain characteristics. They will be anti-freedom, anti-human. I think they're going to be carbon like carbon trackers like we're going from a we had money backed by gold we're going the money backed by debt and now we're going to go to money backed by carbon quotas and the opposite side of that i call it the great bifurcation will be decentralized digital energy like bitcoin right where you mm -hmm. a person holds their own private keys they have sovereignty over their money whereas on a cbdc your entire life is going to be in this They'll gamify it. They'll like, oh, I got my carbon footprint down 20% this year. And you get little exploding confetti on your phone and uh, you're allowed to have <laughs> one extra hamburger that month. But everybody, yeah. you know, and I think there's going to be this huge divide between people who who manage to preserve wealth on this other parallel system. And, and these parallel systems, I believe, will succeed because I think this incumbent system, which at the end of the day is built on debt, is going to collapse in on itself. Yeah, what, what, but I think what they're trying to do is I, I, I think they recognize that inevitability as well. And they're trying to manage the collapse of that system mm -hmm. so that they can get as many people on board with the system they have waiting in the wings as possible, which, of course, yeah. is the CBDC. Um, and a lot of people, of course, are not going to be prepared for, uh, you know, the ramifications of an economic collapse. And, um, and, and I think a lot of people, like I've said in some past uh, interviews, are essentially slaves to convenience, mm -hmm. um, you know, having to do a lot of things for themselves or produce their own things or build communities. You know, it's it's work that some people just don't want to do. Right. Um, and, you know, it's a very uh, effective, you know, carrot, I guess, or, or bait uh, to offer people a semblance of normalcy um, as long as they use the CBDC. Right. And um, I think that'll work on a lot of people, uh, but hopefully not enough. Right. I mean, ultimately, uh, the, the success of these agendas comes down to whether or not there will be mass compliance. When COVID hit <clears throat> and the lockdown started, I remember saying to my wife, people will accept anything to get normalcy back because there was yeah. such panic and fear because at the time we didn't know if COVID was going to have like you didn't know if half your family was going to die of COVID. And you were yeah. like, I just want this to end and whatever they want to do to end it, we will do. And then by yeah. the end of it, 
it seems like institutional credibility kind of bankrupted itself. Like they were like, it was managed so badly. They were wrong about everything. Uh, the, 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 the vaccine rollouts, a shit show. Um, you know, so now actually I, I'm a, I became a little more optimistic after COVID because I said it pulled 20 years of creeping totalitarianism into 18 months and that shocked a lot of people awake. They're like, yeah, sure. This is, mm-hmm. this is where we're headed. I don't want to live in that kind of a world. Yeah. You know, I hope it was like that too, that they um, overplayed their hand and more people yeah. are aware of the extent of it. But, you know, um, also, uh, you know, there were a lot of disappointments, like a lot of people fell in line, particularly in anti-establishment circles <laughs> of independent media, particularly yeah. on the left. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I mean, that was really egregious and unfortunate. Um, and it continues to be unfortunate. I mean, a lot of these people have have declined to go back and revise a lot of the things they were saying over the past few years. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate, particularly for people who posture as a anti-empire, for example, but are willing to overlook the outsized role of, of the Department of Defense and either the Wuhan situation, biowarfare in general, uh, or the, 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 the funding of, uh, mRNA vaccines uh, from their inception and their role in Operation Warp Speed, which developed the mRNA vaccines. Uh, that have been widely used around the world and of course obviously controversial and, and problematic uh, as as the data shows right so yeah. um you know I, I think some people um you know let, let's hope that it's uh more people than can necessarily be seen online because i think it's important to point out that a lot of what we see online particularly on social media is heavily manipulated almost every social media company uh, was originally incubated by uh tentacles of the national security state a lot of them are fused with the national security state, if not from their origin, uh, they are by now because most, almost all the big tech companies double as military or intelligence contractors, usually both. So you can't really say where one begins and the other ends. And um, I shared on Twitter a few uh, weeks ago how um, the U.S. military was funding research about how to uh, use social media to control human minds like they would control a drone, right? Mm-hmm. So um, these information environments and these algorithms are all there to be weaponized against you. And they're obviously weaponized for the benefit of these people, most specifically the national security state. So you can't really trust anything you see on there right including the number of likes and retweets something gets it's all manipulated and it's all for show you know i'm only on social media now just because of uh you know this is the work i do and i have to do everything i can to try and get people to read it in today's environment right but you know for regular people i would say rss feeds all the way and manage the news feed yourself and take out the insane social media middleman guy that's obviously you know quite corrupt and you know elon musk tried to you know there was the twitter files that that showed corruption pre-elon musk but even with elon musk in charge it's really not so different right maybe yeah. some accounts have been unbanned but a lot of the the problems continue and of course he's a military and intelligence contractor uh through uh spacex and and some of his other firms so um He's he's in his in his own way. He's like a Trump who is like presents as a maverick against the system, but is very much yeah. of the system. Well, you know, he's he's we're told he's the richest man in the world. So under a lot of people's metrics, that means he would be the most powerful man in the world. Right. But it's not really so. So if you look at his case, uh, the only reason he was able to accrue that fortune is because he had a lot of businesses that were heavily subsidized by the state. And yeah. you don't get that, those kind of insane subsidies without being on board with something. 
or right. playing ball with particular people and serving a particular faction of the of the global elite right so i you know people like that these billionaires that are put in front of us even including bill gates these people are allowed to reach that level for a reason who allows them to reach reach that you know it's debatable who might be on top but you know as far as we can observe as regular people i mean it seems to be the bis right because who controls the money would Mm -hmm. ostensibly control this system and as far as we know right it's the bank of international settlements the central bank of central banks uh maybe there's something above that i mean it's not like there's a lot of transparency into how the bis operates right so Mm -hmm. um but you know, we can assume that it's it's somewhere around there. So, uh, you know, a lot of it that it comes down again, like everything else to money. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of the stuff I talk about in the book, right, uh, financial crimes and a lot of the stuff uh, that we have to think about going forward as a society is money. And a lot of what they're trying to do to force us into what is essentially a slavery system um, is money related. And it's about really that slavery system is being masqueraded and disguised as a financial system. Right. What, what cracks me up about, especially I call it WEF speak, is that they always have this like perfunctory moral framing around oh of course and the way that like we're gonna recontextualize we're gonna we're gonna reimagine and and they use Mm -hmm. all these nice buzzwords but they're really presenting something like demonic right like well totally a great example larry fink the past two uh, cops right cop 26 and cop cop 27 you know he's on camera saying if we want to get serious about saving the environment and climate change, we have to reimagine the World Bank and the IMF. Yeah. And then you look into what he means by that and you see, oh, Larry Fink is a principal at GFANS, the Global Alliance for Net mm-hmm. Zero. Yeah. And GFANS policy documents say that reimagining the World Bank and the IMF means instead of using them, you know, as they've historically been used since they were created as essentially... um uh extensions of u.s imperial power let's instead uh recreate them so that they explicitly serve uh, the banks that compose gfans so instead of being uh you know in u.s military documents and i've reported on this on the past the imf and the world bank were both referred referred to as as uh, as weapons of u.s imperial unconventional weapons of the u.s military so now if if we reimagine the world bank and the imf as larry fink has been proposing that would make them weapons of wall street directly yeah does that save the climate or does oh. that help the bankers who all happen to be in charge of uh, the human climate change policy? <laughs> Which, by the way, the UN put in charge of uh, climate change policy, Mark Carney and Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. So tell Canadian me how that boy helps here, the regular Canadian boy there. He's going to yeah. be prime minister someday. I'm dreading it. You know, it's going to be uh, <laughs> going to be a rough ride. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um. You know, we're coming up to the hour, so I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, Let's maybe talk a little bit more about, um, I like to leave people on an optimistic note, parallel systems, taking control of your own mind. Mm -hmm. Um, You've talked a lot about that. Uh, You want to leave us with any parting thoughts on that? Sure. So a lot of, you know, a a lot of people, including me, when I talk about this stuff, try and give more practical solutions. But I think uh, not enough is said, including for me, about how much of this is really a mental 
game. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you mentioned earlier what I brought up on on Robert Breedlove's podcast about like the colonization of of, of our mind. minds. And yeah. I think, you know, um part of this too, part of this 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 situation that we're seeing unfold. A lot of it um I mean even people in the military have done presentations on the past the battlefield of the future is the human brain, the human yeah. mind, right? And so a lot of social media and media in general is aimed at uh, influencing how people perceive something. And when you control human perception, you essentially control human behavior, don't you? And so a lot of this is is aimed uh, explicitly at that. And I think people underestimate the extent to which that is the focus to a very significant degree. So the best thing you can do is to uh, make your you know, mind as independent as it possibly can and sort of go and analyze a lot of the stuff that you've been taught and that uh, you've been led to believe and sort of, you know, it needs to be reassessed all the time because, you know, information warfare is a very serious component of of current warfare today. And again, social media is a significant part of that. And I think people would be naive to think that a lot of people in independent media aren't part of that too, right? So there's a constant need to have to go to the source of the information and and reach your own conclusions and decide, um, you know, use your critical thinking skills because there's been decades and decades and decades uh, worth of of effort from the powers that be to essentially erode people's ability to think critically. And um, another thing too is, you know, just as much as physical preparedness for what's to come, mental preparedness is also important. So in a time of panic, I mean, we saw this with COVID, right? If people that were able to keep their cool were able to plan more effectively, people that were people that are panicked and just focused on the fear tend to make poor impulsive decisions, right? That's not going to help you in a time of crisis. Um, So, um, you know, I live in South America. I know uh, people from Argentina, for example, there was a total economic collapse there in 2001. Uh, from what I've gleaned from that, the people who were most mentally prepared for it were the most successful. Right. It's all a mental so, game, really. There, A lot of this is a mental game. And I think, uh, again, a lot of people, unfortunately, underestimate that. And you do not need any money or capital uh, to sort that out. That's something you can do yeah. for free within yourself, right? And that um, actually, you sort out your mental game, you will become more financially independent and 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 yeah. less reliant just as, a, as an outcome of that. Right. And also this idea of how accustomed we've been to to convenience and how recognizing that convenience is what's being used to hurt us into the system, I think is also important. There was, uh, it may be inconvenient to try and grow a portion of your own food, but a lot of the food system is being weaponized, uh, poisoned. Mm. I mean, it's not just about, um, you know, food independence. It, it's seriously like a, a major health thing at this point, right? Oh, and yeah, it, yeah, and it's only picking up. So a lot of people, I think, need to understand to um, be able to see the convenience. Once you can see that that's the main carrot that people are using, uh, these people are using to drag us along, you know, you, you, you can start to recognize it more. And, you know, it takes time for some people, but, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't, I live in the wrong place to prepare. I, mm-hmm. I don't have time or money. Well, I mean, uh, you can sort out your own brain, can't you? You know, <laughs> so, you know, there's stuff everyone can do and you don't even have to, um, 
necessarily um be able to have the money to go off grid and all of that i mean there while the internet is still the way it is there's plenty of time to make uh libraries of useful traditional skills and uh, develop your own um abilities you can just learn how to do st- i'm like i taught myself how to knit watching youtube for example right mm-hmm. i mean there's a lot of different things you can you can do and you can improve yourself without spending any money right uh, because those skills become valuable a lot of people in the u.s have forgotten about all this stuff because it's all been outsourced and we've been consistently outsourcing uh, our basic needs to uh, corporations and people that want to turn us into their slaves. So, um, you know, if you don't want to do that, you have to sort of take some responsibility back and we've sort of been conditioned culturally to not do that. Right. The other thing you can do that costs you no money and will actually make you money is to identify if you have any um, addictions and get rid of them like over the holidays. Right. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. I realized, so I got really sick over the holidays, first time in like 30 years and so sick, I couldn't drink coffee. Okay. And, uh, so I have this mind splitting headache going on for like four days of like, I can't even function because I can't drink coffee because my, you know, and I, and, and I'm going through caffeine withdrawal. And I said to my daughter, I said, here I am, Mr. Prepper, Mr. Be Prepared, Mr. What What are we going to do if civilization collapses? And I won't be able to function if civilization collapses unless I can get my hands on some coffee, right? So like, <laughs> yeah. so I got to wean off of coffee or stop smoking cigarettes or whatever it is. And then suddenly that's given, getting you down that path of momentum of taking control of your over your own life. So. Yeah. And um, another point I want to leave people with is uh, stuff that I've been thinking about. Um, um, in terms of like the bigger picture. So why has is all this effort being made uh, into creating this particular control system? And why is there such a, a vast interest globally in, in controlling human beings to that extent? I would argue that there's a certain class, mainly in the elite, and you can see antecedents of this in the work for the elite by people like Edward Bernays, an example, who Mm -hmm. invented public relations and propaganda uh, at the same time, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Um, They see, um, when they look at regular people, they see chaos and they see unpredictability. And they want to be able to pr- predict everything. So a lot of what's going on isn't just about controlling the present What in this system they want to implement. It's about pre-crime or predicting. Yeah. It's all yeah. it's all predictive. It's about predicting the future, essentially. The managerial um, state, yeah. Yeah. And so what they're trying to do is turn all of that chaos into order so that they never have to worry about that chaos coming back. But what is that chaos, really? I would argue that a lot of that chaos is really born out of human creativity and yeah. imagination and ingenuity and, and all of that. And a lot of these people in, in the upper classes uh, don't have that. Right. Right. And yeah. they don't like it. They don't like the, unpro- they're trying to turn, you know, that into order. And ultimately this is why this is a, a fight against the natural world as well, because the natural world, you know, life, what makes us humans and humanity, humanity and uh, life, what it is, is that it's, it's, it's creative and expansive and, uh, you know, uh, reducing it down to complete order and predictability is what they want, but it's, it's also impossible. 
<laughs> when we you live understand in an out of control the nature world. of things. Yeah, uh, they want like a sterile yeah. controlled world. And and given how what we know about physics, at least, uh, you know, it's impossible to do that. So, you know, they can't succeed in the long term. How much damage will they do in the short term? I mean, that ultimately depends on us, right? Yeah, that's but, you know, question. it's important to point out that like their schemes uh, are completely against natural law and thus cannot succeed, at least in the long term. Right. And I think a lot of stuff that they're going to try and use to force us into this uh, the system and that sort of mentality, including artificial intelligence, I think a lot of it they're going to end up faking along the way. I think they'll probably fake the singularity before they actually have it and things, things of things of that nature. Um, but, um, you know, how, how so if these people are obsessed with order, how can you like drive them crazy? Uh, be as creative and unpredictable as possible, <laughs> ultimately, because okay. I mean, that's what drives them nuts. And uh, one key point about this. Uh, so, you know, even in the current era, when people talk about, oh, this dystopian system we're being led into, they like to cite uh, famous novels like Brave New World. In 1984, which are, you know, Orwell and Huxley, those sort of came out of the same aristocratic groups in England, mm. right? Uh, but there was another person that wrote a dystopian novel of a similar flavor well before Orwell or Huxley. Uh, his name was Yevgeny Zamyatin. He was a Russian. Uh, he died penniless and totally forgotten in exile. Um mm. And he wrote his book is called We. And essentially mm. what happens in We, spoiler alert for people that would like to read it, um, instead of using the tactics that are in Brave New World in 1984, what this, the one state it's called uh, does to ultimately exert uh, indefinite control over their citizens is that they forcibly suggest uh, subject citizens to brain surgery to remove the part of the brain responsible for imagination. Mm-hmm. And I would argue there is a reason why that book is totally forgotten and the other <laughs> ones are promoted a lot more. Um, because ultimately, if you look at, at what they're trying to stop, it's that, right? Yeah. And so this is ultimately a battle over what makes us human. And, you know, it really is a, a, a battle for the fate of the species, to be sure. And I think people really need to uh, recognize that's part of the game. And so the more joy and creativity and spontaneity of life, the more you can be that vivaciousness of life, which is what we want to protect and what we're fighting for anyway, the more you can exude that, um, you know, the more damage you're doing to their designs. That's how I feel. That's great. Whitney, um, this has been worth the years it's led up to this conversation. I'm so <laughs> glad that you came oh, thank on. you. And, uh, you know, um, I heard back from, uh, Liz, who's proof listening it, uh, that's going to get, so the, the audio volume one is going to be out within the next few weeks. And then we're, we're on to volume two. And, uh, I would love to have you back on sometime, talk more about transhumanism and, uh, this, this sure, I'd love to. dream of AI. So that would be great. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, you're reachable at unlimitedhangout.com. Where are you on Twitter? Yeah, so my handle on Twitter is uh, at underscore Whitney Webb. Um, I'm also on Telegram, but not under my name, under Unlimited Hangout, the site. There's another Whitney Webb channel that's not me. It's okay. Unlimited Hangouts, the only channel I have. Um, and um, I think on my Twitter bio, I have like a link tree link in there. You can see, you know, I'm on other social media platforms as well, the, the smaller ones. Um, I don't have a YouTube channel. I only post videos on places like Odyssey and stuff like that. I'm not mm-hmm. interested in playing Um uh, ball with big tech very much. So, you know, you I don't tend to invest. at all. 
Have you started? Huh? Play, have you started no, I haven't. I, had, I don't know enough about it. So um, I tend to regard a lot of these new platforms with some skepticism. But, you know, maybe over time, some will prove worthier than others. Right. It's not a platform. It's a decentralized. I've heard it was decentralized. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think this one's got legs. I think it's um, I think it's. Well, I yeah, I'll look forward to checking it out. then. Thanks. All right. OK, thanks, Whitney. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.